Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welling Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today you're listening to... Kathleen Powell, Curator of the St. Catharines Museum and Supervisor of Historical Services. Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. We're recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, which we acknowledge is part of traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples, and adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. Welcome back to our special podcast sub-series devoted to our Books and Brews book club here at the museum. And wow, I just can't believe that this will be our final Books and Brews night of 2017. Our November book is Volkswagen Blues by Jacques Poulain. One of our shorter reads, thankfully, this novel draws on some very interesting themes of culture, language, emigration, and post-colonialism. And the story is told through the perspectives and experiences of a French-Canadian writer and a Métis woman. We don't have many opportunities to talk about French Canada at the museum, so Poulain's novel opens up some great dialogue. Today, we will explore some of the themes that struck us in Volkswagen Blues. We will also share a conversation Kathleen had with Dr. Danny Sampson, a professor at the Department of History at Brock University, to dig a little deeper into the issues of cultural identity and language in the context of Quebec in Canada. But first, a few words about our upcoming programs. Collecting, researching, and preserving your family history is challenging work. And as museum professionals, we get it. What do you do with those old photographs? Your mother's silverware or your wedding gown? How do you record the stories that have been in your family forever? And before it's too late. The St. Catharines Museum wants to help you with these questions. We're offering four two-hour workshops to help you figure out how to organize and care for the information and materials in your own family collections. The St. Catharines Family History Workshops are presented by St. Catharines Museum staff. Registration is $10 per session, but space is limited. Our next session is Saturday, November 18th, and is all about oral history. So... Register today by calling the museum at 905-984-8880. Volkswagen Blues was written by Jacques Poulain in 1984 and translated into English by Sheila Fishman in 1988. The novel tells the story of a writer, Jack Waterman, a reference to Jack Kerouac and to Poulet himself, who takes to the road in an effort to find his wandering brother, Theo, and to overcome his writer's block. On the road, he picks up Pitsemin, nicknamed La Grande Sauterelle, who is half Quebecois and half Innu. It is revealed that she is suffering from an identity crisis related to her mixed ancestry. La Grande Sauterelle joins Jack on his journey from Gaspé to San Francisco via the Oregon Trail. Both the narrator and Pitsamin personify an uneasy and changing Quebec, and their search for Théo 
leads them to retrace historical migrations that parallel their quest for roots in the American landscape. Their quest involves a nostalgic search for traces of colonial French presence in North America. Through allegory, Volkswagen Blues thoughtfully explores the hybrid nature of Quebec culture and nationalism in the post-1980 Quebec referendum era. Let's start the discussion with our own thoughts and interpretations of the novel. Sarah, what themes stood out to you most? So I really enjoyed this novel. I don't think I've ever read something written in the French language to be then translated into English. So it was really interesting for me when I was reading... I kind of had to remember that Jack and La Grande Saturelle, that they are French and that their conversations that they're having are in French and their interactions that they're trying to have along their journey are in French. And I kind of felt like I might have been missing out because I'm reading it in English, right? And I feel like some of the... Um, the nuances in their relationship and how they saw the world might have been lost because I was reading it in English, but I, I found it really, really interesting um, to see how that played out throughout the novel um, and to remember that when they're speaking to the people that they saw throughout the American West and throughout their travels, um, that they were always asking, like, oh, do you speak French? Or Jack would be struggling to, how does he translate it? a sentence into English and that kind of language barrier I found really interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that the book was actually written in French and that they're speaking French to start with until um, I was reading some articles uh, as research for the uh, this podcast and for uh, the interview with uh, Professor Sampson. And they're talking about this difference in meaning of words. And mm. we don't get that in the English version because... The word only has one meaning, but in some of the words that are in the novel, the words would have had more than one meaning in French, and it actually changes mm -hmm. a little bit the interpretation of how you read the book mm -hmm. if you um, if you had that understanding. It made me actually want to read this book in French yes. so that I could kind of, if my French was probably better, so that you could kind of really see the full impact of the, uh, the book. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Uh, the first page is the translation and actually the first dedication is the dedication of the trans the translator not the author so uh and then the that comes later so i w i wonder if when they had it translated he wanted that right up front so that you knew going in that it was in your head that you read this with a um a f like a informed that this yeah. is you know like so that's on your mind yeah a lens that's yeah. right yeah cuz mm -hmm. that's how i've i've read it as well I think the book was really great. I really enjoyed um, that it took you to so many different places and that while there's lots of really interesting themes, they're kind of, you just almost take them in almost unconsciously. You're not, mm -hmm. it's not smacking you in the face with, uh, with some of these things like colonialism and um, French... Uh, um, issues in Canada at the time or uh, First Nations histories or those kinds of things. It's there, but it's not overt almost. And so uh, it made the read a lot more smooth for a fiction book, a book of fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I totally agree with you because I, I learned a lot in reading this about the expansion of the American West, about the Oregon Trail, about just how 
American people treated indigenous people there because that's a very different relationship than what happened in Canada. But I learned a lot, but I didn't feel like I was reading a history book or a history textbook. Like, and it wasn't just about, about those history lessons. Yeah, I have to thank uh, uh, Professor Murray Wickett, who was one of our uh, guests in one of our past podcasts for teaching me all about the Oregon Trail. I actually didn't know very much about it until I had an American history course with him last year. So <laughs> yay for that. It helped me to understand a little bit better of what was going on as well. I think that I think that the book, just in length and in style, does a better job, maybe. We'll leave this to the decision of our book club members, but I think it does a bit of a better job than Margaret Lawrence does with some of the same themes. I I think just in the first sentences, I I was more engaged than I was with Margaret Lawrence, and I kind of feel a little bit bad, but he's a better writer. Um, At least for me, it's smooth, and it covers already the same themes um, Mm -hmm. in in a easier, more gentle way. Mm-hmm. One thing I was I found really interesting about this book were these kind of histories within the story, uh, where they kind of delve into very specific things, either that she's picked up in a book that she's borrowed from the uh, <laughs> the local <laughs> library, or uh, that she's picked up in her uh, travels along. And I really enjoyed those histories within a history. I think one of the um, articles that I read about this book called it an intertext. And so it's kind of like a story inserted into the story. What did you think about that? How did you think that that was, did it, do you think it was a great thing for this book as far as moving the story along or what do you think? I think it moved the novel forward. And I think, again, it kind of helped with the whole allegory of what they were doing with their road trip, right? The allegory of taking the Oregon Trail and kind of retracing those steps of early explorers and early immigrants and stuff, um, I think them with those inter stories, uh, I think that that added value to what they were doing generally just going down on the road trip. Yeah, and otherwise you might not understand some of the references. Just like the exactly. first book that we read, um, the um, Green Grass Running Water, where you uh, had to have the, the glossary at the end almost to kind of explain to you the <laughs> references to all these different things in the book. This one had it right there in the middle of the uh, the narrative, and you kind of like said okay hold on a sec step Mm -hmm. away from this for a second here's the the story behind this and then go back to the narrative Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting way to go Mm -hmm. that kind of made me think about like who the audience of this book originally was if it was written in French specifically for a French audience that might identify with this experience and how well would have this book done on the on the bestseller list like it was it even popular and would and then would the translation get picked up you know, by English readers. Oh, is, interesting. Unless point. it was on CBC or something like that. Right. I don't know because I was born the year it was translated. <laughs> Man. I had to fit that in somewhere. <laughs> I do feel like this book would have been a popular book when it first came out mm. um, just because of the times and what was happening in our country at the time. I think that uh, it was it's very timely for the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, in Quebec, and I, I can't see that it wouldn't have been popular, besides the fact that it's actually a really great read, and uh, it's manageable size. I know that's not the way you should judge a book, mm-hmm. but it is a manageable size. It's a great read. It's uh, it's not too overtly political, although it does cover so many political themes, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's just a really interesting 
kind of road trip story. And anyone who's read um, On the Road by Jack Kerouac, this is kind of has that feel, and that was extremely popular. Mm. And I mm. thought it was a great book, and this book reminded me of it completely. Mm. So mm. I think it would have been popular at the time. Not that I know, because I didn't do any research on whether it was on the bestseller list for mm. 52 weeks or anything like that, but uh, it's definitely, it definitely was a great read. Mm-hmm. But something that I didn't realize or didn't pick up in the novel was the whole, like, Quebec hybridity thing, and that was the big deal in the 1980s after the referendum. It was like, well, what is Quebec culture then? Are they French? Are they yeah. English? What's happening? Yeah, does the, your language represent your identity? Mm-hmm. And is that what Quebec is? Is Quebec represented by the French language, or is it something else? And I mm-hmm. think that I agree with you. I think that the referendum and the um, the... FLQ crisis and all of that at the time was all surrounding the whole loss of language and what was Quebec going to do? Mm-hmm. Like, do they is if they lose this language, do they still have an identity in Canada as a separate, distinct society? Mm-hmm. I think that was part of the discussion at the time. Totally. I think it's more than that, and I think it's become mm. more than that. But at the time, I think that was a, a, a major part of it because it was a major part of this idea that they were losing this language because there were so many English people moving to Quebec mm-hmm. that uh, what happens if that happens? Are they still a different society? And becoming more secular, they were losing other other <clears throat> tangible things to connect their identity to. So yeah. it used to be like French and Catholic, you know, and so on. But becoming more secular, they had less and less mm-hmm. things to attach that to. And still like that uh, very much. Um it's a very French as in France way to, to look at things as well in a secular state and assigning your identity and patriotism and loyalty to the state rather than to anything else. I think one theme that does uh, follow through that we've uh, discussed in the other two books that we've also done this year is First Nations issues mm-hmm. um, and the um, throughout the entire book pretty much uh, there's this refuting of the uh, traditional colonial story of how things got to the way that they did, either uh, from the earliest days of Champlain um, coming to Canada through to a lot of the kind of intertexts that they add to the book, and then uh, Pizze Min um, basically refuting that colonial um, mm. story with the First Nations kind of perspective and we've definitely seen that in all the other books that we've done uh, this year uh, that have covered First Nations issues and how we need to really take a look at things in a more holistic manner and to look at it through the lens of more than one perspective. I found her a really interesting character because she almost had like this sixth sense to her or something otherworldly. She just always seemed to know where to go next and know that there was oh well there's an art gallery there obviously and it closes at 5 30 i'm like how do you know this <laughs> this is before cell phones and internet <laughs> <laughs> well we did get information back in the day <laughs> before <What>? technology how <laughs> might have to read a book or look at a map <laughs> i know what I is just... what is book you speak of it's a map <laughs> i think the other thing i really liked about her character was that she's very um 
almost asexual, you know? Like, she sometimes takes on this personality of a man where she's dressing up as a man when they went to the YMCA at the very mm-hmm. beginning of the book mm-hmm. and trying to get in as a man, but then at the same time in other spots she's uh, more as a woman. So she kind of covers a lot of different perspectives in the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she just seems to have a knowledge that... I don't know, it just seems very... I don't know, more. Wise. I don't know. Yeah. What's maybe the purpose that's the of word. that? I think it's I'm not sure. Because she's kind of Jack's companion, mm-hmm. right? Um and I think the purpose of that she's how we learn about these other histories and she's the one who's subverting those colonial histories. Like she's saying, No, is it Etienne? Brulee. Yeah. Mm. He wasn't this great hero. He was kind of a jerk. Mm. And she, she exposes that to Jack and is constantly cause or asking Jack to kind of rethink how he thinks about the world. And she brings in these uh, books to kind of force him to take a different perspective. So it's really like flipping is. the norms. Yeah. Right. And subverting these traditional knowledge that he thought he knew and she's subverting it all the time and she's also kind of like his foil in the the book in that he is you know a a writer with writer's block who doesn't communicate particularly well Mm -hmm. and um she provides the opposite side of that where she uh is fairly effusive and um she'll get right in there uh she's not afraid of anything whereas he's afraid of everything and Mm -hmm. um so uh, she provides the opposite to what he provides to the story. Yeah, definitely. Mm. That's a really good point because in this whole journey of him trying to find his brother, it seems like he's always afraid to ask the questions or to go to this person. And, you know, the, uh, there's a couple of characters in there. I think he was at a bar at one point, and he he got all the way to this bar, and he was too afraid to actually ask the bartender if he knew his brother. And she was like, you came all this way, and you're not even going to ask her. I'm going to (laughs) ask. Maybe it's the museum professional in me, but I couldn't help but take note the weight Jack and Pitsimine placed on these institutions, especially considering the author's use of revisionist history. When we say revisionist history, we mean a reinterpretation of the traditional historical record and traditional narratives of history. It's about challenging and subverting those traditional histories by bringing in new voices, perspectives, and experiences previously excluded from the narrative. Postcolonial thought draws on these ways of thinking, too. We'll talk about postcolonialism a little bit later in the podcast. I'd like to spend some time now to talk about Poulin's critical commentary on the way North American history has been written and also how he uses museums and archives to make those critiques in his novel. Kathy, let's start with you. What struck you most about the way Poulin wrote about the historical record and museums? Uh, I think the thing that struck me the most that uh, I thought was kind of amusing uh, at least at the, the first read, like the first kind of read through of the book without really, you know, analyzing it in my head, is uh, this museum in the gas bay that they go to first and they get there and it's like a high school student sitting behind the desk reading a comic book. 
<laughs> and basically couldn't care less about what they were there for. And I thought, this just gives museums a bad name all around. But then I was thinking, you know, everyone's been to that museum. We yep. know that place, probably. Yep. <laughs> and so that kind of is a drag that that hasn't changed since the 1980s. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, and I also think that they don't really make museums really dynamic places in this book, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, but that could be just a, a sign of the change in how museums function in communities now from when they did in the 1980s when the book was written. Um, I don't know. I wasn't working yet in a museum at that <laughs> point. But uh, um, but I don't recall uh, museums being that place when I was a you know, growing up and looking towards working in museums. So that part I thought was kind of a drag. But I really enjoyed that they um, placed the historical record in the story that way. I thought it was a really great kind of testament that there was this um, this notion that the um, the knowledge was there, that, no, mm-hmm. that museums and galleries and libraries, I even enjoyed the, that libraries were part of this as well, that those are the places of knowledge that you go to find the traditional narrative about whatever it is, whatever community it is, and whatever story it is you're looking for. Obviously, they go on to kind of refute that traditional knowledge by kind of looking at it with new perspectives, but uh, I did enjoy that. I thought it would be interesting that um, a little tiny museum with a kid reading comic books at the front desk would be a museum that would have the original document of, uh, you know, (laughs) Champlain's visit to Canada right there on display where you could just walk away with it, but... Um, but I, I, I enjoyed that it was included as part of a um, kind of a, the place to find the story of that community. Yes, I agree, and I, I really, I kind of saw they framed museums and these these places, yeah, as like institutions, like the highest level where that's where you're going to find the answer right there, and I, I appreciated that. And I appreciated that they would go there and then question what they saw there sometimes, yeah. too. I thought that was really good. And I do agree that. I agree. Because then it just reinforces this idea that they're just a starting place for finding information. And mm-hmm. then it's really up to the, the viewer, the reader, the visitor to take what they've seen in a museum and to... Um, interpret it based on their own experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought that was really well done there. And I, I liked how throughout their their journey, they were stopping at places in Quebec and in Ontario and throughout uh, the States as well. Like, it was kind of cool to, you could, you could almost like trace, like it made me want to go down that sure. same road trip and go to those same places and see if I could find what they found and how would I interpret it differently based on my experiences when I'm looking for too, right? Because Jack was looking for a very specific story. He wanted to find his brother. And through his journey, what he thought of his brother and then what he learned and how that totally changed is really what was happening in the museums and the places that they visited as well, um, how those stories were changing. Well, I think it also just shows that uh, one person's uh, trip in a certain place isn't the same as everyone else's, right? Mm-hmm. So Jack's trip is, he sees it in one way. He sees what he thinks he's going to get out of it at the start and then how it's changed as he goes along. 
Um, and then Pitsamin, Pitsamin, she is the same. She has a different trip, but it's the same place. So you could map out any trip and get something different, and every single person can do the same thing no matter where they go. Yeah. Which I think is really cool about this book. Yeah, exactly. I really liked that. So another question that I have is, so just talking about revisionist history and subverting these traditional narratives, what do you think is a museum's role in that? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think that um, in current politics and post-colonialism, I guess this is where we're going to bring up the that word, mm. in the current kind of atmosphere of post-colonialism, uh, it's really difficult for museums to find the, their right place, especially hi- historical museums like we have here, where your museum was created uh, probably to celebrate colonial identity to start with. And so what do you do when, um, like in this book, you're, you're finding out that that story has much more nuance and layer to it than was told to start with Um, and how do you make sure that you're capturing all of that with the same collection that you started out with as representative of a colonial story well there's this idea that I've been thinking about recently in relation to post-colonialism that every and I could be wrong so totally check me on this that every generation thinks it's the most enlightened mm-hmm. um well certainly since the enlightenment that's what it's been yeah. <laughs> prior to that maybe but not so much but <laughs> i think that informs the way that we try to tell stories mm-hmm. and in some ways the history the history that's being revised can be hugely influenced just on the fact that well this original story was this is the way we told the story in the 1950s or the 1960s so we must tell it differently mm-hmm. now that it's 2017 there's no way that we can actually tell that narrative the same way mm-hmm. um so there's kind of an there's a whole bunch of different aspects to that that in 20 years will they turn around and turn or, and tell the story they told it over the the original way or you know in 50 years or whatever I think it also comes down to what stories are you privileging over one over the other mm-hmm. and how do you decide what that is. And I agree that um, there's this idea that we have to be sure that we are more enlightened about how we're telling the stories of our communities. And especially in the last, I want to say the last 10 years, that has definitely been like at the forefront mm-hmm. of... Um, a museum interpretation is making sure that the story that you're telling isn't one-sided, doesn't really privilege uh, one colonial identity over someone else who was the uh, bore the brunt of colonialism, and mm-hmm. um, making sure that those people that visit or take part in whatever programming you're offering understand how they can interpret the story themselves with us without us having to ram down their throats a specific narrative and that's i think incredibly Mm -hmm. difficult because Mm -hmm. you can never assume what people are going to interpret from any story that you tell Mm -hmm. and just like uh how uh, social media is designed to push information to people the information that they want to see 
that I think that we have to be really wary of making sure that we aren't becoming um, that we're that we're not being so broad that every single person could read their own um, kind of stance in anything that we write. So, you know, if you're a white nationalist, you could see your story in this. If you're a First Nations person, you could read your story in this. If you're a European Mm -hmm. person, you could read your story in this. Well, we need to make sure that the story we're telling is the relevant. Mm -hmm. But what is that? I think that's our biggest challenge. What What is that? story that we should be telling i think one of the best examples here um because we talk about it all the time of how we retell a narrative is um and it's a really obvious example too is the story of william hamilton Merritt and the canal and that for so long even when i arrived here and i'm sure when you arrived here kathy as well that Merritt was really the guy who was given 100% or maybe 90% credit for the construction of the canal and I mean he was very hands-on but he didn't pick up a shovel so Mm -hmm. there it by focusing on that great man and the great man theory of that particular history you leave out and ignore um, things about merit first of all about his life and about his politics and then also all the narratives of the people who actually did do the digging yeah. um, mm-hmm. post-colonialism I think has revealed so much research that's incredibly valuable to a fuller picture. Mm-hmm. To my earlier point, I think another 20 years will, I don't know if it'll still be called post-colonialism, yeah. but another 20 years will also reveal more about how mm-hmm. we tell the stories mm-hmm. now too, whether yeah. this was the right direction or if, if there's an even more more correct direction in 20 years. Uh, for us to be telling them. It's incredibly difficult, though. I agree with Kathy, because we often try to tell alternative stories. And another favorite example of mine is... Um, and it sucks that it's an alternative story. I just called it an inter- inter- alternative story. It shouldn't be at all, is uh, the story of Gwendolyn Mullock, who is the first female practicing physician in the city. She went to U of T, and the only photo of her that we have... and that we could find anywhere else was a photo in the U of T collection uh, and it's her basketball team photo. It's not an in, even an individual photo of her. It is, um, it's a team photo and she's in the back row. And for our, our uh, pioneering women exhibit, mm-hmm. we had to uh, sort of play with that photo digitally to make it work for the exhibit. But it is a really good example of how collectors in the 60s, and 70s. Well, and she died in 1950, so it wasn't that long after that our museum was created. So she might not have fit the collection mandate per se, but um, the way in which we go about looking for objects to tell our stories, mm-hmm. um, and that how that can sometimes pigeonhole you into specific mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, if our mandate is to tell stories through objects, if you don't have the object to tell that story, how are you going to tell it? And that's, you know, part of our challenge is to figuring out that, you know, if we don't have objects that represent a certain a certain um, point of view related to whatever the history is that we're trying to, uh, to tell in that exhibit or program, we have to figure out what's the best way to do that. 
it's good though because I think it's good that we're talking about it. and this is what I mean by like every generation thinks it's the most enlightened is that we we're certainly not the first museum people but it's so at the forefront talking about the excluded groups mm-hmm. um, or groups that have been excluded from the narrative before and that's what I think this book is so important and some of our other books from the Canada 150 Books and Brews series this year this fall has been uh, really revealing to our book readers but I think to our podcast listeners and to us three sitting around the table that there's way more than one perspective uh, to the history that you think you know Mm -hmm. I think yeah and I think that uh, I think through all of this it not just from reading these books, but I mean, I was aware of it before reading the books we did this year and last year, but I think it just reminds me, and as the curator exhibits, I think it's really important that I remember that um, it's not just my um, white woman, European background, middle class perspective that should be considered as part of this I need to remember to step outside mm-hmm. of my own perspective and the perspective that I'm reading in uh, in the research I'm doing and ensure that I've I've told everyone's story it's you know we have to be those keepers of these stories and we have to uh, ensure that we find a way to tell them whether that means connecting with specific communities or finding alternative narratives that's kind of an important thing and it this just always reminds me that this is important to make sure that we are very open about how we tell the stories here that's what i really like about the 150 exhibit and other community exhibits we did we've been doing and to come around to sarah's original question about how museums fit in the post-colonial era our mandate here is to tell objects with or tell stories with our objects that's a sign of my cold and flu uh but 150 allows us to tell community stories our community exhibit uh program allows us to tell community stories and i think that's the one of the ways in which we can be uh post-colonial air quotes is uh, swing wide the gates mm-hmm. and welcome everyone in to use us as a space, mm-hmm. uh, not just to see and view what we have so that it's not just show and tell 1967. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's more about a reflective space for them to share their stories with the rest of us. Today we're talking with Professor Danny Sampson, who is an associate professor in the Department of History at Brock University and chair of the History Department. Thanks so much, Danny, for taking the time to chat with me today. So today we're talking about the novel Volkswagen Blues, and the novel itself explores the connection between language and identity in the context of Quebec history in Canada. What role would you say that language plays in the creation of distinct identity groups in Canada? most specifically Quebec, but uh, other language groups as well. Well, language is, it's not, doesn't take a genius to figure out language is, is important to how we interact with one another. And so it often creates a barrier to, to who, we're, who we're talking to. And so people notice this. In Quebec, language has 
come to define what we've come to know as the two solitudes between the, the French and the English. And that's a that's a weird term, and we could talk about that term in itself, which is because I love that term because it, if you look at the actual long version of the quote, it does it actually means separate. It actually means things coming together. But, but it's an interesting thing because it really kind of marks difference in a in an outward public kind of fashion, but also in an inward kind of fashion because people um, speak the language at home and the language that they speak at home maybe the different language. If you're in Montreal in the early 20th century. You'll walk downtown, and you'll you'll be you'll be required to shop in English, um, even though you're in this French city. So it is this kind of really significant marker of difference in, in all kinds of ways. Um, my background is is Acadian, and Acadian French is different than Quebec French, and Quebec French is different than Parisian French, and so on. And there's things we could talk about there too. You know, there's the kind of Norman background of most of these people. They're the people that arrive in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, don't speak Parisian French. They speak Norman French, and it's a different French. So there's all kinds of different things going on there. But for Acadians, um, a, a longer uh, group faced with stronger assimilation pressures, smaller population, the expulsion, all those kinds of big stories, it, it's meant greater pressure on those people. Uh, and so what you've seen is kind of a, a pushing off to the side of language and a kind of vernacular forming they call shack. And it's kind of a rural, working-class um, part English. There's a little bit of Mi'kmaq in there, a little bit of Gaelic in there, but it's mostly kind of combinations of Norman French and English. And it really is a really critical marker for those people and the way they think about themselves. Um, but of course, over the course of the 20th century, uh, they've been looking for ways to reassert themselves, and language becomes a primary basis there. I had an interesting experience this summer, and I think it relates directly to the story. Um, I have a summer house in Prince Edward Island, and we drive. I live in an Acadian village in Prince Edward Island, and uh, love to talk to people about language and love to talk about politics. But there's an Acadian museum just nearby, and we drive by it all the time. And I had visitors from Europe this summer visiting, and they said they wanted to go to this museum. And I had never been. Uh, you know, the, the, the historian, the Acadian historian, had never been. But I went there and, and took them there. And it was really, really interesting. For, and they really enjoyed it. They thought it was really neat. But what really struck me, and I think that we've talked about this a little bit before the interview, uh, what really struck me was, the, was how important language had become. And, and I emphasize the, the verb there because... As an historian, I know that it wasn't always about language. It was always about religion and language uh, because they were Catholic and the dominant society was, was, was Protestant. Um, and in that museum, you don't see religion. There's a couple of little you know, markers of a, you know, you see a nun every once in a while in a school picture or something like that. But it wasn't kind of the presence, uh, the dominant presence that it might have been. Um, language has become that marker in a really, really significant fashion. And I think this book that we're talking about today, Volkswagen Blues, is very much that kind of late 20th century um, secular vision of Quebec nationalism and, and visions of Quebec identity are there. You really don't see much religion in this book. There's po it's pointed to in a few moments here and there, but really it's not central to it at all. Language is really what guides the conversation, guides, guides their thinking about identity. So probably, would you say then that um, the nature of Quebec nationalism has changed? And, oh, and this book yeah. was written in the 1980s. It was much more secular. But Absolutely. would you say Quebec nationalism prior to that wasn't all about French and English, and it was about more religion? It was divided. Uh, if you look at the, the Patriots, the Patriots are not a particular, like in the 1837 yeah, yeah. rebellions and so on, they're not a particularly religious bunch. Um, some of them are. Uh, but most of them are pretty strong secularists. Most of them, most of them understand the importance of the church in what's then called Lower Canadian society. Uh, but they're not devout themselves. Uh, they see it more as a kind of 
aid to civil society and the state rather than mm-hmm. rather than. But some of the some of the more radical patriots of the time want uh, uh, the church to lose all its property and so on. So very much following in the French Revolutionary tradition. But if you look at institutions of civil society, institutions of the state, even. Uh, education in Quebec is is a, is a church-run operation until the 1960s. It's not till the Quiet Revolution um, that, that that the state takes over education, um, at least in, in total uh, in Quebec. Um, so the, the church is always there. It's always providing a kind of, well, obviously a kind of moral force, but also moral not just in that purely religious sense, but of a kind of guiding principles for the people. Uh, and it's the church that emphasizes that insular emphasize on, emphasis on the borders of Quebec. So this book is about, we'll talk a few minutes about Americanité and that broader vision. But their vision is not that broader vision. Their broader vision is the kind of defensive vision that has the borders of the province being the borders of the nation. And so within that, the church holds the, 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 the pieces together in that kind of fashion. But that's changed dramatically in the 20th century. So yeah, you say this is written in the mid-80s. It's 20 years into the Quiet Revolution. Um, everybody that I know, everybody older than myself, I'm not old enough to, to, <laughs> to, to remember the Quiet Revolution, but I know people who are old enough to remember it, and they talk about it in ways that point to one, and, and they're exaggerating, but and they know they're exaggerating, but it got, does get the point across of going to church in 1962 and it being packed and going to church in 1966 and it being empty. There really was this kind of dramatic sea change and religion just was kind of pushed to the side in a very dramatic fashion. You see this in Italy, you see this in France, you see this in the Catholic countries of Europe, uh, but in Quebec you really see it. It's, it was, it's gone from being one of the two primary bases of identity to being barely there. And language is kind of replaced. I would say say replaced, but it's it's certainly it's certainly replaced the entire um, sphere of how people uh, identify and think about their identities uh, in this moment. Um, So when you were just chatting now, you mentioned l'Americanité and uh, what that means. Do you want to elaborate on that further? What it means and uh, and how it relates. Americanité is is a notion that didn't actually originate in Quebec. It's kind of a more Latin American thing as well. but it's just this kind of recentering of Quebec identity and a kind of growing acknowledgement that begins probably in the Quiet Revolution, so in the 1960s, uh, but really begins to take hold in the 80s. And this novel is very much a part of that vision of looking outside the borders of Quebec uh, to find out who we are, meaning who Quebecois are. Um, and it's deeply historical. And this novel, again, points to that. And it points to how, it's interesting, I, I teach you know, these colonial courses and we always show these big maps of New France and the borders are impressive. Yeah. And of course the point I often make to students is, you know, that's illusory because there's not very many French people in that territory. It's, it's basically tra- controlling trade in that territory with indigenous people who still control the territory. Um, and yet French people are there. There's a French presence there. The fur trade is there. And anybody who does anything in 17th and 18th century and 19th century uh, indigenous imperial colonial relations knows how important the fur trade is, how important that reach is. Really do, it really becomes an important story, not just for the French, but also for the indigenous people uh, in those territories. So it's a really interesting way to see where those people are, where those, where those French settlers are. Not, some of them aren't settlers, some of them are passing through, but they're part of that settler movement into the, into the continent. So you see people in places that we now call Detroit and Illinois and so on. We see that French presence on the map. 
And it wasn't that French people, French Canadians, weren't aware of that before. They were certainly aware of that. Um, they certainly talk about this in, in their in their histories. They used to speak about the heroic age of New France and that, you know, the, the, the Etienne Brule and Delard des Amos and those kinds of heroes of, of New France. And that has a vision of heroic tales and conquests, but not necessarily of kind of a lasting place because after the conquest, after Confederation, Quebec nationalism retreats into the boundaries of Quebec, into the province. And they... They, they view that as this kind of thing, but it's not attached to identity. And Americana Tay kind of says, no, we're people of the world. We're people of America. Um, you know, this was an age of exploration. This was an age of, of travel and change and intercultural relations and working with indigenous peoples. And I don't want to call, co cover that over. And in fact, the novel does a good job of trying to tackle a dimension of that. Um, but it, 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 French certainly had a better relationship with indigenous people than the British or the Spanish had. Uh, and again, I don't want to turn it into an ideal situation. It, it was problematic in all kinds of ways. Um, but less military relations, less conquest, less, um, less destruction, and more based on trade and mutual accommodation. So there's you know, lots, lots of ways to think about that. And certainly, so Americanité is a way of, for Quebecois people to say, um, I'm not just part of this little hole in northeastern North America. I'm part of this continent. This is my world. Uh, and I have a particular place within that. It's French. And some might say it was Catholic, um, but it's um, it's it's our place in that broader world, and we ha we deserve to be there, and we ought to be there because we were once there, and we have a place to play in that had a place to play in that history, and we can continue to have a place to play that in the future. So it's it's an encouragement to Quebecers to think about themselves differently, right. on a bigger scale, and not to be not to feel confined by by Quebec. You should be proud of it. You should embrace it. It's, it's part of Quebec nationalism, uh, but it shouldn't become an insular, inward-looking thing. It should be a more purposeful, positive, outward-looking thing. So it's an interesting way to to think about that. And I think most English. This is why I think this is a great novel for English Canadians to read, uh, because it really gives. I think English Canadians a sense of of that broader vision, and I think most English Canadians view Quebecers as insular and kind of afraid of the world. Uh, and this novel and this kind of thought, which has become very important in Quebec in the last twenty or thirty years, uh, is very much a part of that. So, did was there kind of a corollary to uh, of a similar kind of nature with how Quebecers saw themselves? in Europe or in other continents, or was this just on the North American continent? Wow, I don't know if I can answer that question. <laughs> That's a great question. One of the frustrating things that Quebecers, in many ways like English Canadians, but I think Quebecers more so, face when they return to France is that they're not always welcomed as French people. Right. They are Americans who speak French. I know, and it's that Quebec French versus yeah. European French. Which, yeah. of course, is interesting because that's what the <laughs> Quebecois do to the Acadians as right. well. You know, there is this kind of endless series of chauvinisms uh, as, as, as you descend downward. Um, so, so maybe not, uh, but certainly you see in Quebec, uh, at the official level, uh, Quebec's participation in the, um, the, the the Francophonie, the International Francophone Organization, uh, Quebec having a cultural and political relations uh, with France and other French-speaking countries and trying to maintain that kind of broader dimension of French existence. Um, and I know having lived in Montreal um, and been an academic in Montreal, <laughs> therefore hanging around with bourgeois uh, types who, who, had, who had money to, to pop off to Europe every once in a while, 
Some would go to Italy, some would go to England, most went to France. You know, there was that kind of particular nature of what one was doing in Europe at the time. Germany just didn't hold the same cachet. It was, right. it, it was somehow returning to a place that was yours, uh, and a grand place at that, of course. Uh, so there was there is something of that, um, so, but probably not in the in the in the same way that Americanité. Americanité is more about uh, about you being home here somehow, and I don't think very many Quebecers. I might be wrong in this. I'm sure so, again my bourgeois critique here, but I'm sure I'm sure some upper middle class Quebecois view themselves perfectly at home in Paris. Um, in fact, actually, now that I think about it, I know that's true because I know one or two of them. Um, <laughs> but there's, but it's probably not the widespread thing that uh, that is for ordinary Quebecois. You, you can read about notions of Americanité in the newspaper during, in the course of in the course of any day. Um, that European corollary, no, you don't. Not That's really. That, no, not not really there. It's it's an elite thing. It's a political thing. It's a high level cultural thing, uh, but it's not an ordinary everyday thing. Wow, That's, it's a word I didn't actually know prior to having read the American and talking about yeah. it with you about it. And uh, I looked it up a little. Still, didn't wasn't sure if I really understood it, <laughs> but. Uh, I do understand this idea of trying to find affinity hmm. with other peoples to kind of help you to understand your own yeah. character of your own country or your own, and, what they would call their own country. And as you read the novel, there's all these kind of slightly preposterous moments when they happen to run into the French speaker right. in, you know, in the middle of Nebraska or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you, and when you come to those, you, 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 know he's, you know it's tongue in cheek. You know he's kind of playing with you. But you also know it's probable, but not probable, possible, um, that, that these people do exist, that that kind of network is there. And if you happen to hit it, you will hit it. You know? uh, these people find them at the, at the ROM in Ontario. They find sure. them everywhere they go. They, <laughs> they find Frenchness. Um, and it's an improbable thing, but it's there. And they, they see it as part of their journey of discovery. Let's talk about post-colonialism, which we're currently in this era of post-colonialism, but looking at it from the perspective of the French colonizing North America as opposed to the British colonizing North America. Um, With Quebec identity so tied to language um, and this French identity, is it possible to reconcile a focus away from a colonial past and at the same time, maintain distinct society. So can you reconcile uh, moving away from colonialism as a uh, kind of philosophy to and still have distinct society? Mm. Mm. You began that by saying, I'm not sure if that can be answered, and, and, I'll, and I'll second that. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it is really interesting in terms of how Quebecers think about their relationships with Indigenous peoples today. Um, they are acutely aware of that historical relationship, which is, we pointed to this earlier, that, that relations between the French colonizers and the indigenous people was better than it was between the British and the Spanish, uh, between the British and indigenous people and the Spanish and indigenous people. Um, and it was a trade-centered uh, relationship, although, of course, it has military dimensions in warfare, in times of warfare and so on. Um, cultural relationships in many ways. Many indigenous people convert to Catholicism. Um, so there's you know, lots of dimensions to all of that. Um, and yet at the same time, um, there's a, also an awareness that ultimately they are a colonial force. They're, they're still, at the end of the day, doing the same thing. Interesting, I'll just again, to give you the Acadian side of that, um, Acadians and the Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia, uh, 
had very good relations, lots of intermarriage, uh, early adoption of Catholicism by the Mi'kmaq. So there's really quite good relationships. And one of the points that's often made is, is because they weren't competing for the same resources, which is to say uh, Mi'kmaq people were largely, uh, were largely uh, peripatetic people moving from place to place, um, hunting uh, in, in uh, small family bands in the winter and larger uh, shore-based groups in the summer. And so they weren't competing for the same resources. The, the Acadians are going typically to marshlands or to fisher, fishing areas. And certainly Mi'kmaq people had some uses for those resources, but they weren't central. So there wasn't that kind of direct hit. But the obvious point there, and a lot of historians have made this point recently, is that as that Acadian population was growing, that relationship was changing. And that's what you see in Quebec. Um, we were at the stage where it's changed, because uh, it is a larger population. Suddenly there is a significant competition for resources underway. And so if you look at the relationship between Indigenous people and Quebecois over the long term, um, it's increasingly problematic, increasingly troublesome to things like, we can take ourselves into the 20th century and look at something like the James Bay power yeah. arrangements yeah. where the Cree peoples were l almost literally walked over, flooded uh, in the process. Uh, and, you know, an enormous story which speaks to very poor relations. Uh, so there's been a dramatic change, a dramatic shift there in, that, in the kind of in the big picture of all of that. Um, the book, what I like about the book is the, is the character, Le Grand Sauterelle, the, 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 the big grasshopper. Um, she's a constant reminder to us of that story. Yeah. And she, there's different, the book, it's smart. He does interesting things with this. You, you said earlier before we started talking, the book has so many levels. And you're absolutely right. It works on several layers. Uh, it's really fun to read for that because there's different things going on. Um, but she's a kind of constant reminder to us of that interaction and the nature of that interaction. Although on one occasion, she explicitly says what I just said to you earlier, that the, relationship, that the French were better to the indigenous people than the others were. And, and I detected in that a kind of moment of apology, a kind, <laughs> a, a kind of letting the colonizers off the hook a little bit there. And I thought that was kind of fun and kind of interesting. Um, but we certainly see French expansion across the continent, the heroic, we literally are given the heroic age, we're given the names of all these people, we're following them in that kind of sense, even though it's Jack leading us, of course, and then there's the, that's the on the road connection right. to Jack Kerouac yeah. and so on, because it's a, similarly a story of travel across America and self-discovery. Um, but she's there to remind us that, that and to remind us too of that other dimension of Americanite. So it's one thing for Quebec nationalists to say, I am part of this continent, but when you say that, you also then need to reconcile yourself with, and I took part in the colonization of a subject people. And if you don't acknowledge that, then it's just kind of a purely romantic, ridiculous, uh, ignorant kind of nationalism that ignores um, a, a really quite potentially tragic story at its base. Uh, but she's there to remind us that that's part of the story. And I, and I, and I love that dimension of the book. It gives you a, a broader perspective of what's going on. Yeah, definitely. She was my favorite character. She was. She's fun. She's really fun. I really like her. But he's not much to like because he's such a waffly kind of guy. You know, he, he's never quite sure what to think and never quite sure what to do. And I think that, again, I think there is a vision of Quebec nationalism. It doesn't quite understand itself. It's kind of always, it's seeking something, but always kind of thwarted and never quite sure what to do. Um, but of course, part of that too is, and this is another level of colonialism, most French Canadians view themselves as being colonized by the British. Yeah. So there's, you know, like multiple layers of this. <laughs> and I think some people would say his indecisiveness is kind of that. He's, a, he's part of the heroic people that conquered New France. 
he's part of the subject people of the British Empire. You know, he's in that kind of um, in that kind of hard position to make a decision within hard right. position to make a decision within. Danny, thank you very much for uh, having a chat with me today about Volkswagen Blues. I really uh, appreciate it very much, and uh, I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate it very much, and it will add uh, a great layer to um, the discussion that we'll have at our uh, our book club, uh, Books and Brews discussion um, later on in the week. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Museum Chat Live. It's not too late to join in the discussion for November 21st. If you'd like to join our Books and Brews book club, make sure to check out our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, for all the information you need to register. The book club is a really neat way to explore some great literature and the local history in your own community. We're already putting together our book club lineup for next year. We would also like to thank our Books and Brews partners, the faculty of the Department of History at Brock University and Mate Cafe and Lounge. This episode of Museum Chat Live was produced by Adrian Petrie, Sarah Nixon, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines. Woohoo!